Well, if you read the newsletter this month, and you should have if you didn't, uh, you still can, it's still June. But if you read the newsletter this month in my uh, article, I, I told the story of something that happened the other day at the church office. Chris, Marty, and I were busy working away, and we heard this loud boom somewhere back there. And then for about 30 seconds, the lights just kind of buzzed and hummed and flickered on and off until soon the power went off to stay. No lights, no AC, no computers, even our wireless office landline needed power to work. We felt hopeless, powerless, nothing we could do. We're pretty sure probably a squirrel crawled into somewhere where a squirrel shouldn't have been, and he was a cook squirrel by the end of it. Transformer Blue, we had no power. The hardware store had power. The houses around us had power. But the church had no power. It would take over an hour and a half, almost two hours for mid-America to restore power. And so, well, we left. There was nothing we could do. Church had to end. Ministry was over. The power was out. And we went home to work. The church was closed because the church had no power. I've been reflecting on that event in my newsletter article and still today and see it as kind of a sort, a sort of parable, if you will. The question I keep asking myself is, does our church have power? Maybe a better question is, should our church have power? And if we don't, then maybe we did, but the power has gone out. Maybe we should just pack up and go home if we have no power. Over the last few months, we've journeyed with the disciples as they discovered new life after Jesus' resurrection. We were in the Gospel of John, but for our new sermon series, we'll be walking through the texts of the early church, mostly from the book of Acts. And we're calling the worship series A Church with Power. Last week, we saw that power come on Pentecost, the loud sound, the wind, the tongues of fire, the coming of the Holy Spirit, and over 3,000 people giving their lives to Christ because the power of the disciples' testimony, a testimony we're told that everyone heard in their own native language. But this morning, our scripture takes us one step back. We're a few days before Pentecost in Acts chapter 1, before the Holy Spirit has come, before the disciples are in that upper room waiting. On this day, the disciples are finally having to say goodbye to Jesus. After they'd already gotten used to him being back, raised from the dead, now it's time to say goodbye. But this is going to be no ordinary goodbye. The disciples, they know something big's about to happen because Jesus takes them on top of a big mountain. And whenever Jesus gets on top of a big mountain, something big's about to happen. They're on the mountain. So they ask Jesus, Lord, is this the time when you will restore your kingdom to Israel? But Jesus says to them, it's not your business, the times or the periods that the father has set by his own authority. But, but this is what's important, Jesus said, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And they didn't really fully get, even then, when they're about to say goodbye to Jesus, they didn't understand what he was about. See, the disciples ask him, are you going to restore your kingdom? They're ready for Jesus to finally make the world right, to restore the kingdom to earth. And as they saw it, Jesus would muster an army. What better thing to do than a res- for a resurrected Messiah than to get an army and to finally, using this unilateral power, throw off their oppressors. 
But instead of showing his power, Jesus leaves. And he points the disciples to their power. You will receive power. It's not about my power anymore. You will receive power, Jesus says. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will become my witnesses. You will testify to the work, the power of God in this world. Right here in Jerusalem. But then you'll take your testimony from Jerusalem to the whole region, to the state of Judea. And from there to the neighbor state, Samaria, which they didn't even like that much. But from Samaria, you will share this good news to the ends of the earth. And here's, well, here's where it gets a little weird. See, when Jesus had said this, the story tells us that as they were watching, Jesus is lifted up on a cloud. Up, up, and away Jesus goes. Out of their sight. And what do the disciples do? Well, I think they do what every one of us would do. You just saw someone levitate on a cloud into the sky. They stand there and we're told they're staring into heaven, just waiting, just staring, jaws open, probably drool dripping out as they look up and they can't believe what they see. And they probably would still be on that mountain staring if it wasn't for these two men. We're told they're dressed in white. They appear out of nowhere, probably angels, and they interrupt their passive gaze. And they say, men of Galilee, what are you doing? Why do you stand here gazing toward heaven? This Jesus who had been taken away from you into heaven will come back the same way you saw him go. What are you doing? Well, a guy just floated up on a cloud. What do you think we're doing? But the angels say, no, stop staring, staring and waiting, being passive. This is not the job of disciples. Jesus is gone. You're disciples without Christ. And now is when the real work begins. And well, you know the rest of the story. They go down the mountain, and when the day of Pentecost had come, they're all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven, there's a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it fills the whole house, and the power comes. Power. Now, now let's get confessional for just a moment. Power is, is not something we talk about in church a lot. It's not something we like to talk about. Power can be a dirty word, can it? Because power, well, power corrupts, power dominates, power coerces. It doesn't take long for us to begin listing all the many examples of the church and its abuse of power from crusades to justifying and sanctifying slavery and segregation to the clergy sex abuse scandals to the oppression of women and the oppression of those who are lesbian, gay, transgender or or bisexual. And the list just goes on and on of the church abusing power countless examples from the ancient times to yesterday and perhaps even this morning of the church using power to to prop up politicians to give credence to unchristlike policies and behaviors it's enough to make the church wonder should we just go outside right now and cut the power off and yet And yet you keep digging through stories, ancient and modern, and you begin to see stories of the church having power in a different way. Stories of William Wilberforce and the Church of England who stood up to their own government and ended the slave trade from Britain to America. The civil rights movement was begun in churches. Dr. King was Pastor King. Rosa Parks was a church lady. The Montgomery bus boycott was organized in a sanctuary like this. Those churches had power. 
The temperance movement in the United States in the late 1800s, it kind of gets a bad rap for those of us who maybe like a drink or two now and then. But it was essentially a, a bunch of CWF groups from their churches who got tired of their husbands doing nothing but drinking and not being a father and not being a husband. And so they got together. They couldn't even vote. And these church women got together and organized this movement that became worldwide, the temperance movement. And from there, they decided, well, you know what? Maybe we should be able to vote. These lousy, no good for nothing men are the only ones who can vote. And so they organized women suffrage in the late 1800s. And in the 1920s, women could finally vote. Unions, fair wages and child labor laws and social security, which many of us enjoy. These were religious campaigns start by, started by Christians and Jewish congregations. In Chicago in the 30s, a group of pastors and church leaders did something that had never been done before. They were in the neighborhood called the Back of the Yards neighborhood, and they joined with union leaders, union leaders who kind of talked, they were kind of dirty, and they used words that good church folk weren't supposed to use. John Lewis of the AFL-CIO. Together, they began to join forces, and they stood up for workers who were working in meatpacking plants, workers who were getting arms cut off, who were, their lives were ending prematurely. They worked in horrible conditions, and these church people, from this back of the yards neighborhood in Chicago, changed the working conditions in meatpacking plants. I could go on and on, story after story of the church having power. And well, how much time do you have today? Because I got nothing to do. Marty's gone, and the kids are in the nursery, so we're good. But this this kind of power—it's—it's not—it's not what the disciples were looking for from Jesus that day. Unilateral power. That's what. They were looking for the power to enforce their will upon the people, the power to control, the power to get back at those who oppress you. But the kind of power that Jesus points his disciples to is a different kind of power. The power that comes through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a part of the Trinity of God, which is really, I don't know how to explain it other than to just say God is one big ball of relationship of community God as father as parent God as son God as Holy Spirit and this kind of unity that God has is the kind of power that God wishes for us this relation relational power the power that comes when stories are shared when lives are are come together when people become organized around a mission and a purpose and together catch on to God's spirit moving in the world now, in the church, we often talk about love and, and how we need to love the world, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But it was Dr. King who said that we need love, but we also need power. And his quote, one of my favorites, says that power without love is reckless and abusive. But love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best, he says, is love Implementing the demands of justice and justice at its best is, is power correcting everything that stands in the way of love. Love and power, they go together. But you know what else corrupts? Powerlessness. Have you ever felt that way, like you had no power? Like you couldn't do the things you know you should do? The church can very easily become corrupted by power, by being powerless. We remain passive in the face of 
injustice. We wait. We're like the disciples and we stare into heaven and wonder when the Lord's going to come and do something. Come back. And the world around us is suffering. Powerlessness tends to corrupt, but powerless churches can often grow. But powerless churches may not be filled with the Holy Spirit. I had lunch last week with Wallace Bubar. He's the pastor at Central Presbyterian Church in Des Moines. Like his church, uh, we're a part of Amos together. And while we were eating, we were talking about a project that his church has done over the last year for two refugee families. After a lot of negative talk throughout the presidential election about refugees, their church decided, well, they thought they'd do something. They were tired of just posting about things on Facebook. They said, we should do something. And so they called up the United States Committee for Refugees and Immigrants here in Des Moines. USCRI used to do a lot of resettling of refugees through churches. I think our church, in fact, worked with them or a similar group uh, several years ago to do this. But they hadn't done this kind of work with churches anymore. To them, it was becoming too difficult. And, well, they could just hire someone to do this. They didn't need volunteers. But Central Presbyterian Church was convinced that they needed to do this. They felt God moving and convinced USCRI to be a partner. And it's working. They're doing amazing ministry. Two families now, one of them from Syria. I forgot where the other one was from. They've resettled. They've found them apartments. Church members have walked with them uh, to get their kids enrolled in school and to make sure they have all the supplies they need. They've taught them how to use the bus system in Des Moines. And Pastor Wallace says this more than anything in the history of our church has transformed our church, helping refugees. And he told me we did it. Well, we did it because we thought it was the right thing to do. We felt God calling us to do it. But you know what? Our church actually can afford a full time communication staff member whose job is to communicate and to advertise. We made a new logo a year ago. But it was this work with the refugee family that got us on the front page of the Des Moines Register. And this past Sunday, he told me on Pentecost, 10 people joined their church. And he asked them why they were making the move to be a church member. And the majority of them said, we wanted to be a part of this church when you did what you did for those refugee families. We want to be a part of a church like that. And their work is causing waves beyond their church, too. Their, their story is being spread. More and more churches are now calling USCRI, and they're having to figure out how to partner again with churches churches are wanting to do this work. But this church said, we're in it for the long haul. We're not just going to get you a job and get you a place to live. They're walking with them. They've learned that the DART bus does not go to their apartment complex up on 63rd. And so what did they do? Well, they had a meeting with DART, and they're trying to figure out how to get the bus to the apartment complex. They're talking to their employers and trying to figure out to make sure they have rides. Congressman David Young called the pastor the other day, said, hey, I want to know what's going on at Central Presbyterian Church. I've gotten a bunch of emails, like hundreds of emails and phone calls about concerns for refugees. Something's going on. And, well, I think I need to talk to you. They're getting attention. But more than that, they've got power to change lives. Churches walking with people in need. Now, there's a lot that could be said, and we've got a few weeks this summer to say it. But today, today I want us to just kind of spit out that bad taste for power and begin to just explore what it might mean to be a church that has power. Power is really nothing more than the ability to act, to do the things you believe, to be active in the world, to act on your passion and mission. As we look around our country, our state, our city, 
what areas should the church speak up? What are the places that we should have action? If we had power, what are the beliefs we would want to, to put action to? What if we were able to change the agendas of our communities into ones that promoted justice and equality that helped families? Jesus called his disciples to stop sitting back and waiting, but to go and make something happen. But you will receive power, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And our world is waiting for a church who will stop being passive and move to a church with power. So what are we waiting for? What are we waiting for? Amen. Invite us as we approach the table to sing a song that may be new to us. Uh, We've sung it a couple times. Number 247, Wind Upon the Waters. And as we sing, let us prepare for communion.